Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. You're listening to Career Crossroads, and if you're new here, welcome. If not, welcome back. I'm Jonathan Colleton, and this is the podcast where I talk to one person each week and explore the decisions that led them to their current career path. Today, I've got another interview after doing an update episode last week. I'm talking to Ashley Ammons about how her career led her to founding Mixtros, a tech company that helps you connect and interact with people at conferences, university events, and really any other meetup, both virtual and in person, where you might need to get to know some strangers. I've actually had Ashley's name on a list of people to talk to since before I started this podcast, and you're going to hear why very early on in the interview, so it was really great to finally get to sit down and chat and hear about how she got from where she started all the way until now. I want to mention that Weirdly, there's some odd audio going on on my end during this interview. I recorded it with the exact same software I always use, but for some reason it appears to have recorded my audio online instead of locally, which is very odd to me, but I think I was able to edit most of it to a point where it's uh, quite listenable, but for some of you who might notice a slight difference, maybe just I sound a little off during the interview, that explains why. So let's get right to it. Here's my interview with Ashley, and stick around at the end to hear what we can learn from her career. Ashley, welcome to Career Crossroads. Thanks for joining me today. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I always like to start by trying to tell people often how I'm connected to the guest I'm interviewing, and I'm pretty confident that maybe like a year and a half ago, two and a half years ago, I was at a conference down in somewhere in Texas and I'm, I'm up in Canada and it was a university conference, I think for orientation programming. And I went to one of the booths there and talked to some guy about a software and I gave him my card. And I remember thinking this could be interesting, but it was kind of a whirlwind conference. It was new for me. And maybe like eight months later, I get a phone call from this guy and he is from your company. And he's calling me to see if I have an interest in setting up a demo for your company. And I did the demo and you were the one running the demo. And that was the first time we interacted. And uh, I was really impressed with some of the things you said at that demo. So a few months later, as I was starting off this podcast, I put your name on a list and I was like, I'm going to try and talk to her one day. So this is all come full circle now. Here we are. So yeah, thanks for being here. You're welcome. This is today. I was going to say, I feel like that just brought things full circle to me too, because now I specifically remember exactly what demo it was, when it was. There was like a couple people from your team on. Canada obviously sticks out. So yes, got it. Perfect. Okay. So today we're going to talk about your whole career path. And we're going to start from back when you were something like a student in high school. I think, you know, when you were about 16 years old, just tell me what you were like. Where were you living at that point in your life? And was there anything that was particularly of interest to you when it came to what am I going to do after high school? So who was I when I was 16? So a couple of things about my high school experience. I was born and raised in Northeast Ohio, right outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And so from early childhood through ninth grade, that's all I knew. Like that was pretty much as big as my world was. Like we took vacations as a family and stuff, but like Northeast Ohio is what I had on my mind. Um, my mom graduated with her master's degree. 
when I was in eighth or ninth grade. And because of that, her career just like took off. Like she ended up getting like a 60 or 70% pay increase after achieving her master's degree, which was extraordinary. And so um, her job actually transferred her to Kentucky. So we moved from Northeastern Ohio to Kentucky. And so I finished out high school in Kentucky. And it's interesting because at first I was devastated by this because I was going to high school with like, you know, all my friends that I had known my whole life, you know, from kindergarten on basically. And, um, you know, I was, I was nervous and scared and kind of devastated because I was really just coming into my own. And um, when I got to Kentucky, I have to now say, looking back, moving at that time was probably one of the most critical things that happened to me during my, you know, early-ish childhood, just because I... I learned to be resilient. I learned that you can reinvent yourself. I learned that you have to be able to kind of get in where you fit in. You know, I I became unafraid to move if that's what's necessary. And over the course of my life and career, I've had to move a couple of times where I have known no one not being, you know, familiar with things. But that piece of my, um, my, I guess let's call it middle to late childhood, that piece of my middle to late childhood, um, it really shaped who I am. And to give you a, you're like, who were you in high school? So I was like, Susie High School. So like I was, you know, in student council, I was in the color guard, which for those of you that don't know what that is, that is like the people who dance with the band. So I was really serious into that. I was in color guard and winter guard in Southern states. That is really intense. So Every day after school, you would go to practice from like 3.30 to 6. And then on the weekends, you would literally practice 9 to 5. Like not, So, wow. I mean, it was pretty intense. Like we went and competed like all over the place. We took a big trip to Florida like and we're in Macy's, Macy's New Year's Day parades and things. So like that was a big part of my life um, back then. But, you know, I was very academic. I did the morning announcements at school. So I was the person who would say, good morning, Dunbar, please stand for the pledge. So, you know, I did a lot of different things. You know, I wrote for the newspaper. So my biggest thing is I kind of wanted to experience everything. And the story that I was going to tell to give you guys an example of who I was. We laugh about this today in my family. But when I first got to Kentucky, I guess I couldn't figure out how I was going to fit in or how I wanted to make myself be unique or whatever. And so the way that I went about doing this, I don't even think I've ever said this on any other recording of any kind. So I'm about to get very, very vulnerable. My way of fitting in was I like had a British accent that I was actually quite good at. And so I literally used this British accent that I cannot do now. It was interesting and intriguing to these kids that were from Kentucky. And so I just, for like the first six weeks of school, had a British accent that miraculously disappeared once I had all the friends and started fitting in. And it's so funny because somebody like approached my parents and they were like, wow, your daughter's doing so good. Like, you know, coming from, you know, overseas and whatever. My parents are like, what? But that's the way I did it. That is part of that. You can be whoever you want to be when you go someplace new. Yeah. Wow. That is spectacular because (laughs) one, I I have so many thoughts here. One, I'm so glad you feel so comfortable to be so vulnerable and tell that story on this podcast. (laughs) That is like, I'm sure 
every teen sitcom in the world has had an episode where somebody fakes an accent for a while. So this is to hear that it's real and people do it in real life. That's fantastic. And I'm glad you explained. And it works. And it works. Yeah. I'm glad you explained what color guard is because that's not a thing up here. Like I watch drumline and I'm like, this is intense. Like the dancing and the music, but band up here is not the same thing as I understand it to be <laughs> down in the U S and I think even more the Southern U S. So fascinating to to hear about that experience and so you definitely were one of those are you would you call yourself like an a-type personality oh my gosh like i'm still an a-type personality so yes i would so so that's who you were in high school and the moving obviously had an impact on that so as you're sort of at some point in high school beginning to think about what do i want to do eventually Uh, as often i think People either think about it themselves, they get pressure from family, not pressure, even sometimes just encouragement to think about what do you want in your future? And often a lot of people are influenced by what their parents do as a career, or some people are influenced because their parents worked really hard and want their kids to have an even better future than they did. So they tell them about very specific careers they should go into. Or a lot of people watch a movie, see a character and go, I want to be like them when I'm older. So what was the thing that sort of drove you to make the decision that you made at the end of high school? Because up until the end of high school, everything sort of planned out for you. And then it's wide open. It is, you know, so my big thing was I knew at some point I wanted to get to New York City. Like, so I don't know that I knew what the job was that was going to get me there, but I was just like, I want to go to New York City. The reason for that is directly related to me sneaking and watching Sex in the City. Um, so I wasn't really allowed to watch Sex in the City, but I figured out how to do it, get it. And I was just so fascinated and I feel like enamored by this glamorized look at what living in a big city is like. And I was just like, ah, my personality is big. Like I got to get there. And, um, you know, so then when I started looking at colleges, so in my, in my household, my parents, like the college wasn't, uh, are you going or are you not going? It was, you're going. I graduated high school at 17. So my parents were like, we would like you to go to college, like somewhere close by home just to make sure you're good. And then, you know, after your uh, freshman year, you could transfer out if you like, which I now understand what they were doing because they knew like I likely wasn't going to transfer out because I was going to make friends and like all that kind of good stuff. So uh, my mom's job sent her back to Ohio. So we have been in Kentucky for my 10th through 12th grade graduated. My mom's job sent her to Ohio. And then I ended up going to college literally nine miles from their house, but I lived on campus. And what's interesting is I had a couple opportunities up in the air. So there was one college in particular. It's a small liberal arts college uh, in Georgia, uh, where I'm actually sitting right now. It's called Agnes Scott. It's an all-girls school, but like very... um, I don't even know the word for it, just very like established, like known for like producing like strong women that go out and do things, you know? Um, so I was, I got accepted to there. And so I was like kind of raring to go, but then my parents hit me with the, oh, you need to stay, you know, closer to us for the, for the year. And so I did that. So I ended up at a small liberal arts school again, outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And at that school, several of my uh, family members had gone to this school. So, you know, close family friends had graduated from this school. So it was like a good school to be going to. It's actually known for music theater 
randomly. And so um, I say I went to like fame college because like people would be like playing cello outside and like there's a big music conservatory. We were the first school to get the rights to Phantom of the Opera at the collegiate level. So, you know, a lot of things uh, go on with that program. In fact, a lot of my classmates, I used to see them on Broadway. So that would be kind of crazy. So when I went to college, though, I majored in broadcasting because after a while, like I realized like from the morning announcement thing that I was doing in high school, I was kind of like, "Mm, you have a knack for speaking like you should go into that. And so broadcasting, mass communications and public relations is what I decided to major in. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty you had a pretty good path to a major. Sometimes I talk to people and they're like, I don't know. I just made it up as I went, but (laughs) you've got some very particular rationale for why you went to the school you went to and the major you picked. So that's, it's great that you had that kind of clarity at that point in your life. Now, as you attended school, did you feel like you were working towards a very specific job in broadcasting after that? Or did school as it does for many people, sort of change what you wanted in your future? Because that's kind of the story of what happened to me. And so I always want to know with other people, is it one of those like straight shot through school led directly to to sort of what's next or was school this really different experience that changed you? School was the different experience that changed me. So again, in college, like I look back on college so warmly, like I had such a great college experience. Like I feel like I graduated from college knowing near everyone on campus. You know, it was like a 5,000 person campus. Like, no joke, I feel like I couldn't walk anywhere on campus without saying hi to someone I knew. An interesting dynamic with my family is I come from a blended family. Um, Not only, you know, just blended, like my parents got remarried and, you know, all of that, but also in terms of race. And so I have always had a very diverse perspective on who friends are, you know, what that looks like, what your friend group looks like and all of that. And, um, you know, I've never been intimidated by in spaces where, you know, I am the only person that looks like me. When that happens, I instead of using that as something that, you know, gives me anxiety, I use that to an advantage because sometimes you just are. So when I was in college, same deal as high school. So I was a radio DJ. I was a varsity cheerleader. I was in a sorority. I was class president. I was an orientation leader. That was a big one. So like, again, I was uber involved on that campus, like every facet. Like if I walked on the campus today, I would still have people that remember me. And I graduated in 2009. So it's been a minute. So, you know, I think that that is fantastic. My college experience, though, the part that really shaped me would be when I landed an internship. So, you know, I landed an internship when I was in college. It had nothing to do with broadcasting and the opportunity kind of fell into my lap and it fell into my lap because of all those things I was doing, all that involvement. It impressed someone who I didn't really know. But when he and I connected, he after a short conversation with me, a fellow student, he just said, you know, I know this woman who's looking for interns and I think that you would be great for it. And so he literally sent an email. And three weeks later, I became LeBron James first intern. So, you know, that was the life changing moment. I feel like that moment is still reverberating. Wait, I'm like very happy to see my team on Space Jam 2 that's out. I hope that's out in Canada too. Um, But yeah, you know, that was an extraordinary thing. I was like 19 working for the king, if you will. Yeah, that's the moment. I remember you stating that when you did the demo. And I remember thinking, okay, there's got to be a good story here. And I want (laughs) to hear the whole story. So then it just, it worked out perfectly that here I am and I get to hear that whole story. So that's it. 
what kind of stuff were you doing in that role as an intern, like task wise, the sort of skill set that you gained from it? And did that influence your ideas about future career? Absolutely. So this is where my mindset really started to pivot about what I was going to do once I got out of school. So the LeBron thing, I mean, it, it's just kind of extraordinary because you you see this guy and he certainly is, he's a whole brand. He represents so many things to so many people, certainly not just someone who is great at basketball. There's so many um, dimensions to him and he makes an impact on the world. Like if you love sports or you don't, this is a person who is like pouring back into the world. So um when I first got to the office, so he has a marketing company. It's called LRMR. It's now called LRMR Ventures. So when I worked there, it was located in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, today, they're located in Akron, Ohio, which is LeBron's hometown. Literally, when I first got to the office, like there was nothing. Like there was no furniture. There was no pens, paper, pencils. And the woman who I reported to, who was the CEO's executive assistant at the time, she's COO now. She came from an academic background, and so with the interns that she hired, she was just very much like, to anyone who reaches out to us as a company, they don't know that you're an intern. I know that you're an intern, and as long as you carry yourself as such, you're just a part of this team. And so I took that very seriously when she said that because I was like, wow, this is going to be quite an opportunity. And, you know, I think it starts as most things do. Like, you hustle when it's the beginning. You have to hustle so people see how serious you are or not, where your skill set lies, you know, how you approach different things. And when I when I talk to students, because I do it often, like I tell them, you have to approach uh, anything like it's everything. So approach anything like it's everything. And so I say that because, you know, there was like no cleaning crew that came to our office. It was me and the little intern team on Fridays. We would clean the office. We would get the grocery shopping done. Like we would do all the things. So some of it was like tasks like that. One of my least favorite tasks was answering fan mail because it never stopped. Like there was fan mail coming in from everywhere. And so, you know, I had to figure out like, okay, how do I sort this out so that like, okay, here's some stuff that's real. Like people are requesting different items, whatever. Uh, here are the crazies. Here are the people who are neutral, who are just going to get like some kind of letter going back and figure out how to get that done. You know, it was answering the phones. It was kind of functioning like an office manager. But as I got good at that, and you know, this was a paid internship. So a lot of my time in college from my sophomore to senior year was spent in this office, um, you know, because I worked at like a real job around my class schedule, I started to get more responsibility. Once they saw that I was pretty serious about like the tasks that they gave me and how I, you know, carried myself and that sort of thing, I would start to get more, um, just more interesting things to work on. Like LeBron had a marketing summit that would take place in Akron and all of his brand partners from whoever he was working at the time, working with at the time, you know, it could be Coca-Cola, could be Nike. All the senior people would come into Akron and we would have this couple day summit where they were just talking about how do we as brands work together to make LeBron, you know, great, like raise the visibility, like all this kind of thing. And so to be on the planning side of that, that is when I got my first exposure to like actual events. In the sorority, I was also the social chair at one point. And so I think those were me getting my toe wet into the event planning, um, the event planning space. Like that was really the beginning of it. Yeah. So did you feel 
was there sort of a, a shift as you were going through school where you're doing this degree in broadcasting and, or at least you had thought broadcasting might be in the future. And so the degree was in mass communications, but did you feel like as you were doing it, school was sort of, uh, an extra component, whereas the stuff you were doing was the, the real world experience that was probably going to get you a job long-term? I mean, I think it was both of them coupled together. Like, I think that there is something great about academic and then practical application. Like, I mean, I think both of those things, like, if you're lucky enough to be able to go to school, have an internship, because it's not a, that's not just something that everything gets to do. And I'm like, highly aware of that. So if you're able to do both, I think that's amazing. But at the end of the day, for me now as a business owner, I will take someone with street smarts any day, because I can teach them what they need to do. There are just some innate things that you can't teach someone. So I really appreciate it that I was able to get kind of trained on both at the same time. Yeah, that I totally agree. We've up in the university sector in Canada, we've started to work on what we're calling work integrated learning, which is making sure that students have practical experience to tie their academic learning to. So I'm a big advocate of that. And my own career came from all of the opportunities I had to practice skills outside of the classroom. So uh, fully agree with everything you've just said there. Now then, as you got older and kind of towards the end of university, I often say, and I hear from a lot of my friends or heard from him, from them back when we were getting close to graduating, everybody might take off for that final Christmas break and they show up and everybody's been hounded all Christmas break from friends and family about what are you going to do when you graduate? And so if that question was asked of you, and even if it wasn't, what would your answer have been? What was the plan like right on the, the edge of graduation. What did you think you were going to do the day after you graduated? So I, I thought I was going to New York. I like, right. you know, I still, that was still the plan. Like I was like, I'm still going to New York. Like I've never, I don't know anyone in New York really. I have never lived in a big city. You know, I'm like, you know, suburban girl really. But I, I still was there. Like I still, like at this point now I had freely watched Sex in the City, right? So like I was really like, oh, like I'm going like just validated everything you already thought before <laughs> it it did I was just like this is this is the thing for me you know I, I graduated on a high I'm actually one of the people who spoke at our graduation like right before we threw the caps I gave like the last speech which was amazing so yeah like I feel like I went out of college on a high note and my next thing was to focus on all right how now do you get to New York another thing that I'd like to mention is when I was maybe a sophomore or maybe a junior I applied to this program in um, New York. It was called Spring in NY. It was at NYU. And I really, really wanted to get in. And I did. When I got that acceptance letter, you know, I like went to my parents and I was like, oh my gosh, like I want to go to New York. Like this is going to be amazing. And my parents, they actually gave me the incredible gift of in addition to my scholarships that I got, they paid for everything else. So I graduated with no student loans, which again is such a gift. And my, my parents were just like, all right, the spring in New York semester is like double what we're paying uh, now for your tuition. So if you want to do that, you're going to have to take out a student loan. And they were like, like, this was like my first like really big girl decision that I had to make. And so I ultimately decided to um, stay. And that also allowed me to like keep my internship and all of that. 
But it was hard because I really thought that I was missing out on this like once in a lifetime opportunity. Like this is a chance to go to New York and experience it. And I think it was just my first big lesson in life that things happen when they're supposed to. Like if you're putting hustle behind something, like things will fall out the way that they're supposed to. So sometimes you have to wait. You really have to be patient. And so my opportunity for New York did come. It took me six months post-grad. It took me going back and forth to New York like three different times for three different interviews with three very distinct companies to land the job that ultimately ended up being the good one. And again, hear what I said. The first two interviews that I went on, I did not get. People told me no. It did not work out. I had to cope with that and move on to the next one to get to the third one that ultimately ended up being the thing. Yeah. So despite everything sort of going, what sounds like very smoothly, all through university, it it doesn't mean that everything's going to work out just perfectly after the fact. There's, there's always competitors out there. There's always other people who want something close to what you want and they're going to fight you for it. And You've got to you've got to be able to beat them out to get that opportunity, but you didn't give up and you got it. So six months later, you pack up and you move to New York, I guess. Yeah, I did. I did. So for that six months, I actually moved in with my mom's sister. We were like roomies for like six months. She was the best roomie ever. Shout out to Aunt Jackie. It was a little bit harder because instead of being 15 minutes from the LeBron office, I was like an hour and a little bit of change. And, you know, getting up and getting down there to Cleveland and going back, it was kind of exhausting. But literally every single day I would go to work. And then I, when I got home, I would get online and I would just be scouring the job boards and applying for things and looking at things and doing research on things. So like, it was kind of like the hustle never slept in that way. And I was literally doing that for like the full six months while everything was working itself out. So I moved to New York in December of 2009, December 7, 2009. And I was there through 2016. And it was pretty awesome. (laughs) Okay. So, so what was the job then that you moved to New York for? Like, what were you looking for? And what did you get? And I'm sure they lined up quite closely. It's at this point, I think I was looking for like anything, like anything Uh, that would have gotten me the foot in the door. The one thing that I didn't want to do is I didn't want to move to New York, run out of money and then have to come back. Like I, as a type A person, that just wasn't for me. Like, I don't like to, like, I don't like to be in that kind of position. So, um, so for my sanity, I waited until I got a job and then I went ahead and moved and literally it moved very quickly. Like, I think, you know, I got hired just before Thanksgiving and I was there on December 7th. And so the job that I got is I started off as so many people do. I started off as someone's assistant and, you know, this was actually a LeBron connection. So uh, friends of LeBron and my other boss Maverick, they were like, you know, we are looking for an assistant to the executive or to the CEO of this company. It was a luxury hospitality company called a Tau group. People ask what is a luxury hospitality company? Those are the people who control the nightclubs and the cool restaurants and that kind of thing. And so I became the executive assistant to the CEO. That was my uh, first job when I got to New York. I credit that job with really laying the foundation of my career. Like certainly like LeBron, working for LeBron in that office did it, but this was a different level of responsibility. And so this is where I really got my hustle on because 
I was able to do the assistant job I figured out, but then there were so many events that were going on at the company. I would like insert myself into the events that were going on. So like I would be friendly with the people who planned the events who worked at the same company as me. You know, for example, they would be like, oh, you know, we need to find somebody to like work the door for this event. We're going to pay them like $750. And I would be like, well, I will do that for like $500 and um, I would be happy to do that. And so, you know, some of the grunt work that nobody wanted to do, I would literally insert myself in doing it. So for a while, like I was doing the executive assistant job and then also being like an events coordinator. And then that turned into an events manager. And I literally just kept growing myself into the company. You know, when you get into the events field, unless you're doing events that are like very like inside of a hotel or you know, very stringent like that, the best way to learn for that field is to do. Like you need to get yourself situated under someone who's great at it and watch them. You need to watch them. You need to work all the positions that you might manage one day. Like you need to be a bartender. You need to be a front of house person, back of house person, the decorator, whatever. And this way, when you're in the I'm in charge position, you cannot react to things. You can anticipate things. And that's what my goal was. Now, was that your goal from the very beginning? Like once you, once you had the job and you moved to New York, were you just young and happy to be in New York and making money and living your life? Or were you immediately on that track of like, I'm going to make myself so valuable here that people can't help but notice and move my way up the company? The second one, 100%, because my parents weren't really pleased to hear that I had just got this liberal arts degree, you know, what, you know, and I was moving to New York to be someone's assistant. Like my, when I first started, my pay was like 38.5, like that's real low in New York. So, I mean, they weren't really jazzed to hear it. Um, So it was definitely the latter. And I know that I did that because, uh, you know, I, I started uh, December 7, 2009, and February of the next year, so February 2010, I had wiggled my way in to be able to go to the All-Star Game and help out with those events, which was awesome because I saw my old bosses, like All-Star Game is basketball, so like I had already figured out how to insert myself and be able to do the assistant job really, really well. Like I, first of all, my boss and I had an extraordinary relationship. So we still have a good relationship to this day. And it's just a really special thing when you have a boss and great executive assistant type relationship because you learn a lot, you know, and you really develop a deep relationship and respect for the person that you're working for. And that's really mutual. Um, So I was great at that job. But then I, I knew that that would allow me to dabble. So my thing was always approach anything like it's everything. Like you're going to this man's house to get his mail. Cool. Do that to the best of your ability and you will continue to get more opportunities. Such a great attitude to have. I mean, it's the best way to try and work your way up through a company because I think people look at often your work ethic and ability to learn, and that can be more important than the skills you currently have. Because if any job you're in can evolve over time. And so Many people are looking for someone who's going to who's going to sort of grow into that role. Like yeah, you want somebody with the skill sets to do it today, but as companies expand, people end up taking on more tasks that they didn't think they were going to have to before, and the people like you who show off that they have the ability to take that task and excel at it are the people who are going to get 
that next promotion, that next job. And that clearly happened to you. As you mentioned, you go from the executive assistant of events coordinator, events manager, and how long were you in that events manager role before you started to, to, I mean, I guess what changed and made you not be the events manager it might be the best question to ask. Was it sort of internal pressure of needing to do something else or, Sometimes, you know, there's just a mutual, like, I've learned what I can learn. I need to move on. The company gets it. You get it. Or sometimes people get pushed out. That happens too. But what was it for you? So interestingly, there were actually two levels above the event manager that I got to. So I got to special projects manager, and then I got to events director. Seeing that kind of growth in just about five years was pretty awesome. Like going from uh, 38.5 to making over six figures, pretty awesome as well. I was like out there living the dream. You know, my first event that I produced solo on behalf of our company was um, two events that were at the 2012 London Olympics. I mean, it was big stuff. So, you know, to have that weight on my shoulders as like a 20, maybe 25, six-year-old, I mean, it was awesome. So I think for me, what ended up happening is I think there's a point for all of us. It could be our career. It could be our surroundings. It could just be where we are in life. There becomes a point where sometimes things stop working for us, like things that we wanted when we were younger and hungry and all this kind of stuff. They just don't work anymore. Like, you know, I think I was in a place where I was getting a little, you know, kind of what's next. You know, I was feeling like, you know, what's next? What's going on? Like, what do I want to do? I had switched sides of the company. So let me take it back a sec. So I think in 2014, let's call it, I went to my boss and I told him, I said, hey, you know, I, uh, I've i been your assistant for a long while. I was like, it's been great, but I was asked to do something today and I realized I could care less. And so that lets me know that I shouldn't be your assistant anymore, but I'm going to hire you somebody and then I will train her and help manage her and everything will be okay. You know, because I because at this point, like my events work was just like starting to it was just starting to get wild. And I was like, I can no longer do both because I don't care. And so, uh, you know, I said that to him and he said, OK, he said my life better not change. And I was like, great. So the girl that I hired to be his assistant is still his assistant today, which I'm just like pat on the back to you, Ashley. She is amazing and awesome. I like I'm like this. I claim her because I trained her so well. So, uh, you know, my really when things started to kind of roll out with the company. So our company was kind of complicated. One part of our company was the nightlife properties, the hospitality side of things. And another part of the company was act in act brand activation agency. So we worked with brands like Coca-Cola, Nike, Heineken, Moet Hennessy, and we did their branded activations that you would see like large scale events, that sort of thing. And I had experienced in 2015 the worst event of my of my life, and uh, I was on a team. It so I say this like not shy. So literally, seven seven 2015 was the second worst day of my life. The first was my mom getting diagnosed with cancer. She is cancer free now, so that was the first worst day of my life. Second worst day of my life was seven seven 15. It was this crazy event that we were doing for a brand. It was their 250th anniversary, and it was like being on the Titanic, being aware that there are no lifeboats, and then 
seeing the iceberg as well. And I just, there was literally nothing I could do. Like I was just on the ship that was sinking and it was like very upsetting, but I started to lose it like around them. Like, I think I went through like a mini nervous breakdown because I was working crazy hours, no breaks. Like once we got through that event, my bosses just felt so bad for the way that everything had went. Cause a lot of it was outside of my control that they gave us like two weeks off paid. And it, you know, that's like unheard of. So it was around that time where I was just kind of like very disenchanted with that life. Like I was just like, Oh my, like I like, this is like taking my soul. I'm very unhealthy right now. Like I don't work out. I am not eating well, like, you know, none of that stuff. I'm not doing anything for me. Like I had worked at a level where I got the shingles when I was like 23 or something. You're supposed to get shingles when you're like in your 60s, 70s. And it was just because I was not taking care of myself. I mean, I used to sleep with a Blackberry under my pillow at all times. Like, and I didn't care where, like, I didn't care if I was home for the holidays. I didn't care where I was. Like if something work-related was going on, I was involved. You know, I was working where I would get to the office at 10, which sounds pretty cool to people, but I also stayed there till nine often. And then once I got home, I would pick it back up again. So, I mean, I was grinding for years. And so I think I started to experience a burnout. You know, I just spoke to somebody else who had a very similar experience in that way. They were working in the music industry and they were, they talked about how they were trying to sort of live the life that they were expected to in the music industry in a way. And, and eventually they just hit a point where they were like, I have to go on this vacation with my friends because I just, I can't go to work tomorrow. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting to hear like how many different industries that burnout can happen. It's not like there's only one job where people get burnt out because they do this. Like I've talked to a friend who was a paramedic and he got burnt out from that. Uh, people in the music industry, people in, in the events industry. And I have to say, I, sympathize so much with what you said that 7715 date as someone who works in events at a university in and predominantly for a long time I did advising for student events but I'm in the middle of trying to plan an orientation week right now where we have all these restrictions because of COVID-19 and it's like I've kind of accepted that like I will plan the best thing I can plan but at the end of the day, there are factors outside of my control that might change things. And it's uh, it's refreshing to hear that other people have gone through that and came out okay on the other side, because that's probably what I'm up against right now. So, so burnout, let's get into, into that. Like, how do you, when you recognize that, some people I've heard, they recognize that they're burnt out from a job, from a career, and they can't do anything about it right away. They just keep doing what they're doing because they don't know what else to do. For you, was it something where you recognized it and you took some time to figure out how you were going to sort of correct course? Or were you able to, like the next day, really make a change to lead towards a, a better tomorrow? So it took a while for course correcting to come because... I remember, you know, 7-7-15, you know, we had that huge event. And then I think the following month in August, I was planning like another event that was like 750 or 800K. So it was like a pretty decently sized event. And, uh, you know, I had to like get myself together so I could focus on that. After that event, things kind of got slower. You went into like a 
whatever the following year was, like planning kind of season. But what really woke me up is um, my bosses at the time, there was just some cuts going on in general. And so it came down to a, my, my, my partner basically, who was a director of events also, who was more senior to me, he had been at the company longer. They went to him and said, um, like, how are we going to justify Ashley's salary? And his answer was, I don't know. And it was at that point that I realized, and it's funny, my mom as an HR professional executive had told me this like forever ago. She was like, you're like making yourself sick literally for this job, for this company. She said, you need to recognize that if something happens to you like health-wise and like you're really down for the count, your company will send you flowers and then they're going to move on. So while you're killing yourself for this job, keep that in mind. They will continue to turn if you're not there. I think that was really the first time that those words just like went into my soul. And I think that's when I knew it was time for a change. Um, I was in an interesting spot because while all of that was going on as well, I was also moonlighting in my current company, um, but I hadn't like jumped into it fully yet. So I, um, yeah, I just wasn't ready. All right. So then I guess we should probably get into what that current company is and how that all started, because I know that it's something you're doing full-time, full force for now, getting all kinds of amazing press for it. That's what I saw when you came and did the demo for me. And I want to hear how that all got started. So from the beginning, like what prompted the creation of your current company? Yes. Yes. I'm like now mixtras. And I feel like something that I would be remiss, um, when I talk about entrepreneurship, I like to keep it very 100 because I think that entrepreneurship is very over glamorized. You know, I think people have these stories about your Jeff Bezos's and your Sarah Blakely's and like all this. And we forget that like most of us, like we are successful if we get to like 10 million, 20 million, like it doesn't have to be a billion. It doesn't have to be a hundred million. Like if you're able to provide a good life for your family and that's the kind of business you have, amazing because you are contributing actively to your community and the economy and all those things. So yes, I'll be very straightforward with this entrepreneurship conversation because frankly, I've experienced burnout um, throughout this journey. But when I was fresh-eyed back in 2014, the way that it happened is I went to a conference. It's actually funny. Sarah Blakely was the keynote speaker. And um, I was there because I was starting to feel like, you know, you have a lot of contacts in the events industry in particular, you know, in these specific industries that you service. So like nightlife, spirits, all this kind of thing. But I wanted more contacts in different things like beauty and fashion and, you know, this sort of deal. And so I went to this conference and my goal was, you know, to just network, make new connections. But there was really no time where it was conducive to that. Like I went to the event alone. Um, the point where they said networking was going to happen, they were like, over lunch, go up to somebody with the same color dot on their name tag as you. And I was like, that is so awkward. I was like, we're not, I was like, we live in New York. This isn't like Midwest. Like I'm not doing that. And so I did it. And I didn't really end up meeting anyone like where the connection was good enough that it would last, you know, past the end of that event. And I went home and I talked to my mom about it because I had spent my own money to go to this conference. And she was like, you know, how to go? What was it like? Da, da, da. And I just told her, you know, it was weird. Like I didn't meet anybody. And she was like, you know, what a waste of money. Like that's the whole point of you going. And so it was this conversation that we had on November 9th of 2014 that led us to get curious about 
okay, there are a lot of uh, software that helps you get to an event. There's a lot of software that helps you stay in touch with people after. But what is the thing that forces the collision between people when you're already somewhere? And we could not find a software that was answering the question in the way that we were thinking about. And that's when our business Mixtros was born. I love that you remember all these dates because that I'm I'm like a visual person and I like <laughs> knowing the history of things and I can like map out a timeline of your life in my head while we're talking. <laughs> this is fantastic. It's it's funny because like very often I do I have to backtrack with people I'm interviewing and I'm like and when when abouts did that happen? Like I don't need a day. I need like a a time frame because sometimes people are like oh I was there for five years and it didn't sound like it was five years when they were talking about it. <laughs> but for you, I can peg like two years here, a year in this. Amazing. Okay. So, so Mixtros, this idea comes to you and it's, I love the story of how you actually come up with the concept because it's, it's seeing a need in a market where no one is filling that need right now. So how do you go about actually starting a company that fills that need? Because your background, as you said, is you've done events as, as you know, your practical experience, your education's in, in uh, mass communications, did you feel like with all the experience you had, you knew exactly what to do? And and I'm not sure exactly what your, your mom's background is in, but obviously she's got a master's, you said. So she, the two of you, did, did the two of you have the skill set to put it together yourself? Or did you just know, here's what we want to do. How are we going to make this happen? That's a really good question. So it's the latter. So we were very much, here's what we'd like to do. Now what? Like, so the great thing about entrepreneurship today is that everything you need is Googleable. That's right. You just have to be willing to put the time in. Like, so like Google is not going to throw it at you. Like you have to be willing to put those hours in and dig for what you're looking for. But chances are somebody has done something like you're thinking of. And there are things that you can take from those experiences and then make it your own. So, you know, when you come up with an idea for a technology and you're not a technologist, i.e. you don't code, one of the first things that you're going to try to figure out is, okay, where do I go get somebody that codes? And again, today it is so much more accessible even than it was in 2014. So, you know, my mom and I use the skills that we had back then to build the business that we wanted in future. Like that's what we had to do. So, you know, we took my expertise and, and I think it's so interesting because, you know, I'm a millennial. I was in a very like non-corporate kind of hustle environment. Then I have my mom who is an almost baby boomer who was in a very corporate environment as an HR executive. So global HR executive at the company that she was at, which was based in Nashville, Tennessee um, at the time. And so the beginning of our company was really my mom was the boots on the ground person in the beginning because I was working. So, you know, I said I wrapped up my job in events in the end of 2016, really, or sorry, the end of 2015. And so my mom, for that first year and a half, she was the person who was mixed rows. And the reason for that is, and again, this is how you know everything happens based on timing. So for the first time in my mom's career, she was taking a sabbatical because her company had IPO'd. And so she was like, wonderful, I'm taking a breather. And, um, you know, for the first time ever, she got to become like a basketball mom because my brother was in high school at the time. And he got more attention than he ever wanted from our parents, I swear. He was like, oh, my God, can y'all go back to work? Um, 
so my mom was, she had that time. She was able to go into Nashville and start to get familiarized with the ecosystems that were at play. What is the entrepreneur center? Who else is entrepreneuring in Nashville? Like what, what is this like? What connections do I need to make? Who should I be um, speaking to? Like who's done this before? So she really did all that groundwork while I would really help her like nights and weekends with, you know, things that we were coming up with. And it's interesting because I think one of the most critical things that happened was my mom is much more naturally entrepreneurial than I am. And so I am like super proud to say that, you know, there are stats out there that say entrepreneurs over 40 are more successful. It's because they have more life experience and business experience. They understand what to watch out for. And my mom, she went to CES in January of 2014. 15, and that's the Consumer Electronics Show. That is the big show that happens at the beginning of January where all the new technologies that have happened, they get displayed there, um, unveiled there. And my mom decided to go because she wanted to educate herself on apps. Like she was like, I really know nothing about apps except for what I use on my phone. So she goes to this conference and she ends up sitting down at a table with these two guys. And, you know, they end up like they're in the same age group, which was a little odd because most people are in that like you know 30s kind of age group and my mom was just telling them like I wish this software Mixtros existed today because I feel so awkward like I'm an older African-American female at this tech conference like there is no one here that looks like me so they end up having a great conversation long story short those two guys ended up becoming our developers (laughs) so they were our developers for the first like four years of our business and we had only met them like a handful of times in person over the course of years of working with them because you know Google uh, Google Meet existed or Google Hangout existed you know all all these technologies we were able to use to like make it happen from afar so I think without that serendipity that happened with us meeting them that day I don't know if we would have been able to get mixtures off the ground because we had gotten quotes from developers in Nashville and at that time they were cost prohibitive because we were bootstrapping the business ourselves. I love that when you can peg that exact kind of serendipitous moment that it's like the the reason that this all kind of came together. Like you already had the idea and you just you're just trying to put it into practice and finally one day things just click and there you are and the company gets off the ground. So so tell me more about what you guys do and what the growth has been like over the last I guess 6 years if you started in 2015. Yeah. um, So what we do is we are a software that connects humans. So it's interesting because I'm literally on the like on the eve or so of releasing a new website because we've released our new website, new look, feel, aesthetic and all those things. Our brand is growing up, which is exciting. And literally the tagline on the website is we connect humans. It's that simple. And that is what we specialize in. We know that when people go to different places and, you know, it could be for work or play, they exhibit certain behaviors. Some of those behaviors include people go to events with people that they know. People go to events and then will find a corner when they don't have someone that they know because it's easier to find a corner and get out your smartphone than it is to engage with others. But we all know that those behaviors are valuable. You know, you're at, you're in an academic role, so you well know that students who are engaged, they're more likely to progress, retain, graduate on time, all those things, which ultimately tie back to the bottom line of the university. So when I'm talking to someone about engagement rates, I am able to, you know, tie an investment in Mixtros to an investment in their bottom line, basically. Um, So what we do is 
when people are already somewhere, so let's call it orientation. You said you got orientation coming up. So if, if students are at orientation, they generally have to be put into groupings of some kind. That is how orientation works. This is something I was aware of because I was an orientation leader. So we saw this use case very early on. So students will get out their phone. They'll take about a minute and 15 seconds to get through basically a survey in their phone. The survey is customized by the person in your position. And what's cool about this is you can ask the students anything you like to engineer the serendipity between them. So you can say, you know, what major are you? And then if you wait that similar, you're going to get students of a similar major coming together. If you wait it diverse, you're going to get diversity there. So basically, over the course of a series of questions, you are literally engineering what you know would be valuable without having to do this arduous thing by hand. So students go through it. When it's time to meet, their phone shows them who they've been grouped with, where they're meeting. Students physically go there, or today they can virtually go there. And uh, once they get there, we give them tools to easily kick off the conversation, like their group-specific data points, also icebreakers that you customize for them, group activities that you customize for them. And then at the end of the experience, they can choose the people that they want to share their context information with so that those new connections can last past the end of your event. So the value proposition here is all around increasing engagement, but then also data collection. Okay, yeah. And and the demo that we saw... Um, I don't know, year and a, probably around a year ago, maybe a little more than that. I was very impressed with what the software could do. And it was, it was something we were definitely interested in. I think we were caught in the middle of that sort of like, how long is this? We were looking at the, um, the online version of it, I think. Yeah. And we were trying to figure out like, how long is this, this uh, pandemic going to last way longer than we thought at the time. Uh, so little did we know where we would be. But yeah, the, the concept of what you do, it really automates a lot of the stuff that I would have to do manually. So it's great in that regard. Now, obviously, five years ago till now, I imagine the business has grown pretty substantially. I mean, I know it has because I saw over the course of 2020 and maybe even late 2019, some of the various accolades that you personally and the company were getting. So tell me about what that growth has been like and how you've been able to manage that. And, and you know, and this is where I wonder about the skills you've had to had to pick up and excel at over time. Because when we were talking before about when you first started your first career right in New York City, your first job, and you just started doing things and doing them excellently, have you have you found you're having to do a lot of the same stuff as you grow the company? So to scale a company, specifically when you have limited resources, you realize that that type A personality has to go somewhat because there's only so many hours in a day. And at the end of the day, you have to be okay with hitting everything at about 80% and just getting it done rather than getting into that elegance creep space where you're trying to make everything perfect. Like a lot of the times at this stage, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be done. And so, you know, I think that that's something that I had to, it's something that I frankly struggled with because that's not the way that I, you know, operated. Another thing is working at an early stage company or coming up with a a business idea in the beginning, it's hard because it's specifically for me, I was in this routine in New York where I would work really hard. The event would go off. It would generally be great. I would get the accolades and praise, and then I would go on to do the next thing. In this kind of deal, like that accolades and praise, like it's not promised to you. It may never come. Like you don't know. Like so much of entrepreneurship is about coming up with an idea that's at the right time 
like timing is everything. Like, is the world ready for this great idea that you have? And, you know, it's combined with that, your smarts, how you go about it. I frankly, a little bit of luck. So the fact that all those things lead you down the path was scary for me because I feel like I have no control over that. Whereas in my past career, I knew what I needed to do to achieve the result that I needed to achieve. So that was very different. You know, it's been a long journey for some very obvious reasons. Well, this is a podcast, like y'all aren't seeing me, but I'm an African-American female. I started this company with my mom when she lived in the South, so our headquarters was in Nashville. And back in 2014, this was like pre-Me Too, all these movements that have happened. So, you know, nobody was focused on, you know, what are the number, what are the diversity numbers in tech? How many women are in tech? You know, what are women building? Nobody was really interested in that. And so the first several years of our business were hard. So 2015 was really our year of what the heck is an app? Like, how do you get it built? So, you know, we were able to get our developers and start the process of building the first version of our software. I will also say my mom during that year got breast cancer. Um, So, you know, there was a bout of that, that she was able to fight through, get radiation and become cancer free. I mentioned that to say, one, don't skip your medical appointments, but two, just because you've decided to be an entrepreneur doesn't mean that your life stops happening. Like your life continues to happen, good, bad, and everything in between. Um, So, you know, we had to figure that out. You know, 2016 was when I actually joined the team full time. So that means I left New York. So left that life that I had set up, that lifestyle that I knew, you know, single woman in her late 20s making over six figures. It was pretty comfy and cushy. And, you know, I gave up that apartment paycheck, shipped all my stuff from New York City to Nashville, moved into my baby brother's room because he was in the military at the time, got his old beat up car. And that was my new reality, which was frankly very hard to to accept, which led me through a period of burnout slash depression because I was on social media a lot looking at what all my friends were doing and it looked like everybody was like in Greece having the time of their life and I really wasn't leaning into where I was in my life and the fact that my journey had changed. It was different and it took me a while to get there, but I was able to get there through good therapy. So I'm about, I really like to talk about mental health. Like, um, like therapy is one of the best investments in my opinion that you can make in yourself. And so I was able to do that and kind of get to the root of my issue and get more comfortable with my reality and, you know, make that decision of, is this mixtures thing worth it to me? Or is it too challenging for who I am? And it's like going to make me sick, like my old job made me sick. And so I, um, I figured out that I wanted to proceed. And so I went all in with my mom. Um, in 2017, I, I always say we still were like the little engine that could. Like we were getting some traction in our business, but it was just so slow. When you look at these um, startup companies, you usually see this, what they call like uh, hockey stick growth. Like it should like go shooting up like this. Um, and it was just much more slow than that. Like we were proving that our product worked, but we really just had no money. And, you know, in the beginning, like a lot of these companies, you know, they'll get millions of dollars of investment, but that just wasn't the case for us. You know, we, we survived off of $200,000, which sounds like a lot of money, but in tech, it's really not. But we survived off of um, $200,000 of friends and family funding that we raised. And we survived off it for like three and a half years before we got our first real institutional round of funding. So, you know, our story really started to change in 2018, where we got accepted to an accelerator program. So think of that as an MBA for business. And so we went through this program, 
It moved us to Birmingham, Alabama, which was about two hours from Nashville where we actually lived. So my mom and I moved into an apartment and we shared a queen, no, a full size bed for like 14 weeks. And uh, that was odd and interesting and uh, definitely a big part in our journey. But like at this point, we, we, we were really comfortable with the fact that you definitely have to be uncomfortable as a founder at times. And generally, it will not be for a long time, but you have to be willing to like dive into discomfort with two feet. And so we did that. And it was really that accelerator program that one, we were finally in an ecosystem that we felt like got us. Something I've learned is when you have your own business um if you're in the wrong place for that business like people aren't getting you feeling you championing you um you should get out of there because that will kill your business really fast uh when we got to birmingham they were looking for founders like us they wanted diversity they wanted women and so we were like well great this feels like a place where we can pour into and they can pour into us and it can be you know really great and so we did and uh when we got through with our accelerator, when we graduated, a pitch competition, a big one, was coming through Birmingham, and it was hosted by the founder of AOL, and we ended up applying, we made it to the finals, and we ended up winning that thing, and we got a $100,000 investment into our business. We went on and raised another $900,000 and change, and so that made my mom and I the 37th and 38th black females to raise over a million dollars in funding in the United States, which was a very disturbing stat, I would say at the time. Um, And then finally, we had capital that we could deploy to like actually make this business function like a business because really what my mom and I had built was a cool software, but we built our software off of hustle and not process. And to scale your business, there has to be process. And so we had to go back and do all of those things that we couldn't do without the funding previously. That's why as a founder of color, as a female founder, we're behind because we're always trying to catch up with our peers. And so 2019 was the year of process. And I will wrap this up to say we were looking good at the beginning of 2020. And then obviously we experienced what the rest of the world experienced like this. I don't even know how to like, I don't even know what words to use around the pandemic. I mean, it was just hard. And, you know, we had to go back to basics. Like we had to, you know, pull the stop on, you know, how we were burning through our capital, um, become um, even more capital efficient than we already were, and very quickly expedite a virtual feature. Like we had it on our product roadmap, but it was scheduled to release late late fall of 2020. And instead, we had to get it out in um, May. And we did. And because of that, we were actually able to raise another round of funding, which leads me to where I am today, which is an actual season of growth. About to launch a new version of our product that I'm super excited about. We are... I think really into process right now. So 2021 for us has been about people. For the first time, we have additional full-time people working on team mixtures, which is awesome. We're focused on products. So getting a new product to market that really takes in consideration everything that we learned over the course of 15 months of being virtual and now people going back um, to being live. So we're hybrid software then the process that supports all of that. So your website as a business should be the second most powerful piece of software that you have, like in a tech business like mine. And so making our website work for us, that's what we have been working really diligently on. So I'm just really excited about that and, you know, what's to come as I start to refocus myself on sales. You also asked something, which is what's something that I don't like? I think you asked that like I have to do now as a founder because you yeah. wear all the hats. Yeah, like what are things that you've had to get really good at? 
sales. Hate it. Ah, uh, that hate explains it. why somebody else called me to set up a demo. Yes. Not you. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, that does. Yes. So like I can demo all day, but I am not the I'm not the closer. I recognize that. So we need somebody else to close. Like I I remember this uh, a job that we didn't talk about was when I was in college, I would work seasonally at Victoria's Secret. And it was funny because I was approached to go through like whatever their managerial like program is so you could get on that track, you know, to grow with Victoria's Secret. And like, I was like, it's funny because the reason that I'm good at this job is because I am good with people, but I ultimately let them be. I'm, I was never the sales associate that was like chasing people around the store like, hey, here are 15 things that are going on at the store today. Because my thing is, if you walk into Victoria's Secret, it's evident to me that you know what you want. And if you have a question, you'll come see me. And so with that approach, I was able to make a lot of sales. Um, and so I feel like with this business, my approach is the same. Like, I want to introduce you to the software how awesome it can be for you but like if it's for you awesome if it's not for you also awesome so I need somebody who can put a little bit more firepower behind our sales process I love how much of a realist you are and that you're willing to tell people like it's not all fun and easy all the time and because I think a lot of people who are running their own business just want to put out their Instagram page with like, oh, look how awesome my life is right now. And that's not the reality for so many people. And something you said earlier on is like, you don't have to make a billion dollars. Like successful companies are making 10 and 20 million. And in some cases, probably significantly less if they don't have a lot of expenses, if they're, if they're a small company. So to hear the reality of starting your own company as a small business and everything that you and your mom had to go through to get the funding and the success that you've had because of all that funding. Just, I just love to hear that. So you had said at one point there, you said that, and that brings you to where you are today. So you're running Mixtros full-time. The company is growing. I think you said recently you've brought in more full-time people to work in the company and if anybody else is interested in Mixtros and wants to consider looking at your software as something they can use for programs like what I'm doing, Orientation Week, where can they find it online? What's the this brand new website? What's the web address? What's the social media accounts they should follow to get updates? Give me all that info. Yeah. So, I mean, we are very straightforward. We're just at Mixtros. So people always ask, what does that stand for? It stands for Mixer and Introduction Smushed Together. So Mixtros okay. is M-I-X-T-R-O-Z. And so we're Mixtros.com. We're at Mixtros across all social media. I myself am at SheMixalot87 because <laughs> I'm all about branding. So yeah, that's where you can find us. I was going to say we're very, very easy to reach because our whole business is about talking to people and it would be kind of hypocritical, I feel like, if we didn't love interacting with people. Perfect. So if anybody else wants to go and get in touch with Ashley, because clearly she is somebody who wants to get in touch with you, all of those links that she just mentioned will be in the episode notes of the, well, of the episode at careercrossroadspodcast.com. Ashley, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your whole career path with me today. It, I mean, I've already said all the reasons why I really enjoyed what you've told me today. So thanks for telling it to everybody else. Well, you're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm sure you're going to become a customer soon. All right. So that is Ashley's career path up until now. As I listened back during editing 
I thought that at the end of my talk about what drives our early career choices, because I thought it was kind of funny that Sex in the City is why she wanted to go to New York in the first place, but it's probably why a lot of people want to go to New York. So then I thought maybe I'd talk about roadblocks and persevering, because Ashley had a couple false starts before getting to New York City, but ultimately she got there, worked her way up, and had a successful career, despite the fact that she did feel some burnout in that career. And while there might be some good lessons there, I think that in honor of Ashley being such a realist about entrepreneurship, and because she's a realist who has achieved success, we've got to talk about what we can learn from Ashley about being an entrepreneur. So to start, she made it very clear, it's hard. Not everyone is going to be Jeff Bezos or Sarah Blakely and go and make a billion dollars. But as Ashley points out, you don't have to make a billion dollars. Don't benchmark your success against billionaires because you're always going to be left wanting when you can't hit that unrealistic goal. Make a realistic goal, celebrate the victories, but continue to try and expand and build up. Two, and I think this one is incredibly practical, you don't need to know everything. We live in an age where you can Google anything you want, and if you have the time and energy to find out more about that topic, you might not become an expert, but you'll become competent enough to know to hire the right people around you to do that thing. So Ashley and her mom, they realized what their skill set was, and they realized what their skill set was not. And then they went and found a developer who could do the thing that they needed to get done. And here we are years later, and Mixtros exists. And yes, there was some serendipitous moments where they met those developers who were affordable at a conference. But if those developers were affordable, others would have been and they would have found them eventually. So put in the work and learn the things that you need to learn and offload the things that someone else can do for you. Number three, and this one really resonated with me, you've got to be able to throw some things out the window to get things done maybe at 80% where they need to be. Because sometimes you've just got to get things out there. They don't have to be perfect. Done is better than perfect in a lot of cases. That is something I've had to learn the hard way as I worked on my transition report recently uh, as I left an old job to start a new one. And uh, yeah, it felt like I could just keep working on it forever. But at a certain point, you just got to decide it's done and it's enough and I can move on to the next thing. And number four, which I think really encompasses a number of the things that Ashley said, is get comfortable being uncomfortable. You're not going to have total control over everything going on around you. And that's just the way it's kind of got to be. And your life's not going to stop just because you decide to be an entrepreneur. So you've got to handle all of the rest of your life that's going on at the same time. And hopefully that's not as significant a challenge as Ashley's mom getting cancer, but you never know what things might get thrown at you. And when you run your own company, you've got to be able to manage those things and keep your company afloat. Sometimes that means making the money last as long as it can, and maybe You've got to move into an apartment with your business partner and sleep on a double bed together for a while until you can get things settled in a way that you're going to be more comfortable with. That's just four of the general concepts I think that I picked up based on what Ashley had to say. And I could have sat here and read through line by line everything she said and pulled out even more of the really important things. But Ashley said a lot of it so well that what's the point of me rephrasing all of it? 
I just wanted to pull out a few things that resonated with me that I hope will be helpful for you too if you are trying to go down a path of entrepreneurship. Having said that, if you are thinking of something critical that I have missed from Ashley's career path, something incredibly important that I should be highlighting for people, I would love to hear what that is. So shoot me a message on the contact page at careercrosserspodcast.com. The music means we are out of time for today. So if you know someone who would be interested in Ashley's career path, please share this episode with them. And if you want to hear more interviews like this, there are 40 plus more of them at careercrossroadspodcast.com. You can also follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast player. And if you like what you hear, please leave the show a five-star review. 